Thank you, Jono. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if we haven't met before, it's uh, lovely to be with you and see you. Last time I was here, uh, the room was very empty. I think we were in lockdown last time I came along to preach. So it is wonderful to see the room full of faces. Um, I'm going to get into the Word uh, with you this morning as part of your Advent uh, series. We're looking at Haggai, which may not be a a familiar place to go in the lead up to Christmas, um, but as we uh, dig through this passage together, we'll, uh, we'll see why it points us uh, to Jesus and uh, particularly how it started to be fulfilled at his birth. So please join me in prayer and uh, we'll get into it together. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful that we can gather together as your people in your presence on this day. We're grateful for this season of Christmas, um, that as we uh, approach that great day in our calendar, we can uh, rejoice as we uh, ponder the ways that you've woven history together uh, to bring your Christ into the world, uh, to bring salvation uh, to each of us who believe in him and to keep bringing hope and light to the nations. So please help us as we look at this passage this morning to have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church through your word and help us to be ready to see Christ afresh and joyfully go out and live out the faith that is strengthened through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you thought that living in uh, 2020 to 2021 has been tough, uh, imagine living in 1815. In that year, just over 200 years ago, the world was shaking. In April, a uh, volcano in Indonesia erupted in what's known as a super eruption and it took the lives of 100,000 people in the surrounding islands. Thousands more died in the Northern Hemisphere in subsequent years because an ash cloud the size of Australia was covering the sun and caused the temperatures to plummet. Europe had its worst famine that century and there was widespread violence as people fought for the limited food resources. Uh, impoverished conditions in Ireland caused a typhus epidemic that killed 100,000 people. In Asia, uh, delays to the monsoon season led to a cholera outbreak, and that itself eventually became a global pandemic that would claim the lives of millions. Crop failure in China's Yunnan province led to such terrible starvation that there were accounts of people eating white clay and killing their children because they didn't have enough food to feed them. Farmers also out of desperation turned to growing opium as a cash crop and that itself sowed the seeds for the later ruin of China. 1815 also saw the final defeat of one of history's most brilliant and powerful military leaders, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, the Emperor of France. 
By the time of his defeat, uh, the Napoleonic Wars had claimed more than three million lives. Now the man who had conquered much of Europe was gone. Uh, The victors were reconfiguring uh, the world uh, without him. I wonder how you would have fared living in 1815, a world of environmental, social and political upheaval, empires collapsing, uh, thousands around you, sick, starving, shivering. Even in our day, in a world that's reeling from this global pandemic, the extent of the woes that were experienced by those who lived 200 years ago might still feel removed from our experience. But the thing is, of course, that nature isn't any more tame in 2021 than it was in 1815. We don't know where and when the next super disaster might occur. A massive war in our region seems more likely with every passing year. Each of us longs for stability, for certainty, for security, but we just are never guaranteed these things in this life. The prophet Haggai spoke God's word to the Jews in a period following a seismic event in their national history. In 520 BC, many of them were back in the promised land of Judea after having the harrowing experience of being dragged off as captives into a foreign land, Babylon. But when Haggai delivers the message of Yahweh to his people, he proclaims the coming of an even greater upheaval, a shaking of heaven and earth and overthrowing of rulers and armies. If you're anything like me, uh, you might have asked the question over the last few months, how would I cope with further upheaval? A new wave of COVID, uh, a completely different, a new pandemic, a national disaster, a regional war. Could I hold myself together if the world became even more uncertain and unstable than it has been in the last two years? And so we may wonder how the Jews, fresh from one of their worst experiences in centuries, would find any hope in a divine message of further upheaval. Well, here's the hope in Haggai's prophecies for the Jews and for us. God promises to use this great global shake-up to establish his kingdom forever through his chosen king. All the kingdoms of the world will fall, but God's Messiah will reign. Have a look with me again at uh, verse 20 of uh, Haggai chapter 2. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. 
and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. This is the second time that Haggai has spoken of a global superquake. You could say that he's the earthquake prophet. Earlier in verse 6 of Haggai chapter 2, God promised to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. The purpose of that great quake was to restore the glory to God's house by shaking all the treasures of the nations so so they flowed into the temple treasury. Now in Haggai's final prophecy, the stated purpose is complete political upheaval in every nation and divine annihilation of their military forces. God promises nothing less than a complete demolition job on the political order of the world. He's going to level everything and start again. And his rebuilding centres upon a guy named Zerubbabel. When Haggai was speaking, Zerubbabel was in charge of the territory of uh, Judah. But rather than being an independent ruler, he was a governor under the Persian king. Yet Zerubbabel was not a random pick for the job. He was, in fact, a royal descendant of King David. Sometimes uh, an heir to the throne that's denied the crown uh, has to go with the next best thing. Uh, 30 years after Napoleon was vanished, his nephew and heir, Louis Napoleon, was in exile in London. To his uncle's supporters, Louis was the rightful emperor of the French. The problem was France had become a republic during the time he was in exile. There was no royal vacancy for him to fill. So Louis returned to France to run for the presidency. He became the first president of France and he titled himself Prince President. That's kind of the case for Zerubbabel. He's a prince governor exercising considerable power but without the kingly status that his grandfather and his ancestors enjoyed. He's holding the highest office possible uh, that he could while Judea was a province of the Persian Empire. But as we've just seen, God's promised a right royal shake-up. The God who can knock down and raise up kingdoms with a breath has promised a special plan for Zerubbabel. Have a look with me in that final verse, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. It's clear that God intends to make Zerubbabel something more than he was. But what specifically? Uh, What Exactly does it mean to be like a signet ring? It's an interesting shift in imagery because if you read through Haggai, most of his ministry had focused on buildings 
uh, houses and temples. And so it would be a more natural fit for his final prophecy to be a picture of something like the temples left standing after everything else had fallen down. But instead, we get a surprise reference to jewellery. Signet rings uh, were worn by monarchs in ancient times to bear their royal cipher. We sign documents with our signature. Uh, Businesses use company seals, and governments still sometimes use wax seals for documents. The uh, kings of old would use their signet ring to impress uh, on a wax seal to show that something carried their royal approval. It was a sign of their authority. We see this a little bit in the Bible. Uh, In Genesis, Pharaoh gave Joseph his signet ring to empower him to act as his viceroy, as someone with the full power of the throne behind him. Uh, In Esther, the Persian king gave his signet to his second-in-command. And the ring-bearer held the authority to issue orders in the king's name and to seal them with the ring. Haggai's prophecy is that Zerubbabel will become so representative of God's kingdom authority that his imprint's going to be on everything in this new world order. So it's, it's goodbye to being the deputy of some foreign mortal king. And it's here's to God's chosen ruler over his people and, in fact, over the world. Before we consider how this prophecy began to be fulfilled at the first Christmas, uh, we need to understand why this promise to Zerubbabel was so important to the Jewish people at this point in their history. Last week you heard from 2 Samuel 7, which records an incredible promise given to King David by the prophet Nathan. This promise, given uh, 500 years prior, Uh, is vital to understanding Haggai's message to Zerubbabel. Uh, You'll recall, if you heard the sermon last week, that David was wanting to build a house for God. He wanted to build a temple. And he was about to do so with Nathan's approval. But God spoke to Nathan, and he was to give David the surprising news that not only did God not need a house, but he planned to permanently establish David's house, that is, his royal family line. Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish of the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David was the king who wanted to build a house for God at the heart of the nation. But God established David's royal house to rule his nation forever. 
And because uh, David's son Solomon built the temple, the house of God and the house of David are intimately linked. And so we see when the Babylonians carried away the Jewish king Jehoiakim, they carried away the treasures of the temple at the same time. When the temple was destroyed by the Babylonian army in 586 BC, the monarchy fell with it when the Babylonians killed Zedekiah, the last Jewish king. Zerubbabel's grandfather was Jehoiakim, the exiled king who'd been cursed by God for his disobedience. Jeremiah the prophet prophesied that Jehoiakim was rejected from being God's signet ring and that he would be thrown away. God declared that he and his children would not rule in Judah again. And so we have a problem. God promises David that his throne will endure forever. But then later he promises that Jehoiakim's kingship would be extinguished and his sons would never rule after him. And this is Zerubbabel's unique position. He's the rightful heir to David's throne, but he's the grandson of the cursed king. God's promise here to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring gave the people a future hope that the Jewish monarchy would be restored, a hope that they could not have really had before this point. God would honour his promise to King David through Zerubbabel somehow in spite of the curse upon his ungodly grandfather. When Louis Napoleon became the French president, he held office for about three years. And then, uh, similar to the term limits that exist today for American presidents, uh, he was required to leave the role. Rather than play by the rules, uh, he broke them and he seized power through a military coup. A year later, he held a national referendum, which he won, Uh, 97% of voters supported his claim to the title of emperor. He reigned for nearly 18 years. He is the longest serving French head of state in the last two centuries. Was this uh, to be the case with Zerubbabel? Is he governor for a while longer, but soon king of Judah? when God wipes out the neighbouring kingdoms and uh, the people who would be their overlords. Well, you see, that's the problem. Uh, Zerubbabel never became king. The Old Testament moves on and he just kind of fades out. Uh, His sons, Meshulam and Hananiah, don't become king, nor do any of his grandsons. 400 years pass by before a Jew is called king in Judah again. But it wasn't one of Zerubbabel's descendants. So how did God fulfill this prophecy? 
Zerubbabel's comeback, if you like, happens on page one of the New Testament. If you've got your Bible there, uh, open with me to Matthew chapter one. And there he is in verse 12 of Matthew 1, several generations back in the genealogy of Jesus. Many of you would know that the genealogies in Mark and Luke have some differences which can be a little bit tricky to explain. Uh, Some believe that Matthew traces Joseph's family back to David while Luke presents Mary's line. Significant, though, that Zerubbabel appears in both lists. He is the key figure linking uh, Jesus and David in that family tree. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem uh, marks the beginning of God's fulfilment of his promise to Zerubbabel. In the first uh, advent, we hear an angelic messenger proclaim to Mary that her child will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, uh, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This descendant of Zerubbabel will be the one to sit on David's throne. When Mary visits uh, Elizabeth carrying Christ in her womb, uh, both Elizabeth and the unborn John the Baptist recognise that they are in the presence of the promised king. In her song of response to this marvellous episode, uh, Mary seems to echo Haggai's prophecy of a great kingdom shake-up when she declares this of God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. When Jesus first graced Zerubbabel's reconstructed temple with his presence, the holy man Simeon declared this to his mother. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And when the wise men arrived from eastern lands, they bring treasures, just as God said would happen when he established his house and kingdom in Jerusalem. And they acknowledge that Jesus was already the king of the Jews and they worship him accordingly. For the first time in hundreds of years, a descendant of David has been proclaimed as king in Israel. This descendant of David and Zerubbabel would carry God's authority, not only as a governor or vice-regent, but as God's son and promised king. Last month, uh, Dr Jeanette Young became the Queen's constitutional representative in Queensland. She is effectively a vice-regent, a signet ring bearer, if you like. 
uh, because the Queen's not present uh, physically in Queensland, our governor exercises the powers of the Crown on her behalf. Things like uh, signing bills into law, opening parliament, swearing in government ministers. In times past, our vice-regal roles tended to go to eminent members of the British establishment, and nowadays uh, distinguished locals are appointed. Formally, though, the closer connection that the vice-regent had to the Crown, the better. Uh, Prince Henry, the um, Duke, of, Duke of Gloucester, was appointed the Governor-General of Australia from uh, 1944 to 1947. As the king's brother, uh, he added a regal connection to the office that was uh, impossible for others to manufacture. Henry Abel Smith was uh, Queensland's governor from 1958 to 1966. He was married to the cousin of our present queen. More recently, uh, some have even proposed that Prince Charles or Prince William or Prince Harry should be considered for vice-regal roles because of the extra personal connection to the Queen that they'd bring. Uh, that's why Jesus alone can fulfil the role of God's vice-regent on the earth. He isn't just the most qualified local, uh, a heir, to the line of David. He is the divine son who alone can reveal God's will to humanity. Jesus is not only like a signet ring that bears God's divine authority. Uh, Hebrews 1 tells us that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Matthew's Gospel uh, not only begins with a sign that God's promise to Zerubbabel is uh, fulfilled in Jesus, but it finishes with one too. Jesus' last words to his disciples include the phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this is the sign of the signet ring. Everything that God approves of has Jesus' name on it. Christ is the king who exercises God's sovereign will in the universe. Jesus also told them, Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. And the presence of God abiding with his people is what the temple signified. But now this is fulfilled in Jesus as well. God's king is God dwelling among us. That leaves us with a very important question to consider before we think about how to apply this passage to our lives. Has the great shake-up that Haggai prophesied already happened? If God has made Jesus his promised signet ring ruler, has he already demolished the kingdoms of this world and their armies? Or, or is this something that the future holds in store? Well, even a cursory reading of church history will show you that Christianity has been disrupting the world and shaking things up since the first century. 
everywhere that Christ is preached, uh, societies are affected by the gospel and we've seen the course of history changed when whole empires and kingdoms have fallen under his sway. But while his coming in power has in one sense been going on for 2,000 years, the event that we often call the second advent is still a future reality. And that's when the superquake will happen and the nations will fall and Christ alone will reign. Jesus himself describes it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The Apostle John's vision recorded in Revelation describes the coming of Christ on a white horse with the armies of heaven riding behind him. An angel calls to the birds to gather and feast upon the flesh of the corpses of the defeated armies, those nations that persisted in rebellion against their creator. The coming of Christ will see world upheaval like never before. Nothing will be the same again. Everything that is of sinful humanity will perish. And only that which is established by God will remain. How does your heart feel about that future? You may feel troubled because it's completely out of your control. You don't like change. You like a lot of the world as it is. Maybe you're still trying to establish yourself as secure and successful in the world and the coming of Jesus is a threat to your plans and your ambitions. A Christian counsellor Paul Tripp observes that the silent prayer of our selfish, sinful hearts is, my kingdom come, my will be done. Lord, reorder the universe according to my desires and my preferences. The sin that dwells within us still seeks to make us the sun with everything else revolving constantly around us. And when our perspective on life is clouded by the lie that we ought to be number one, it's very hard to see Christ's coming to establish an eternal society that revolves around the worship as God of God as being good news. But the gospel declares that this is the only kingdom that will endure. Indeed, it's the only society worth living in forever, even if we at times struggle to be convinced of it, even if we fail to keep our eyes on it 
and on the hope that it offers. Hebrews 12 encourages struggling believers facing hard times with this hope. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God offers to us one secure and unshakable kingdom in the world. Are we thankful for it? Have we started to live lives of worship that reflect the way that we'll be glorifying God for eternity? I want to finish uh, by offering uh, two big implications for us as we approach Christmas and we think about Jesus bringing us this unshakable kingdom. Uh, number one, we need to surrender our self-centred kingdom building to the kingship of Christ. I'm going to return to the counsel of Paul Tripp here because uh, he's so good at uh, expressing this point. I've got the quote up on the, on the screen. Jesus came to free you and me from our bondage to our own self-serving kingdom purposes. He came to help us understand that his grace is not given to make our little kingdom purposes work, but to invite us to a much, much better kingdom. We think we know what's best for us, but we don't. We think we're able to rule our own lives, but we aren't. We set our heart on things that we think will make us happy, but they won't. Jesus sets up his kingdom in our hearts, rescuing us from all other things that would rule us. And he patiently teaches us that we weren't created to live as kings, anxiously working to set up our own little kingdoms. He teaches us what it means to rest in his kingship and live for his glory. And he encourages us with the truth that his kingdom will never, ever end. That's the first implication for us, surrendering our kingdom ambitions uh, for the kingship, to the kingship of Christ. But secondly, we should not be fearful of anti-Christian powers. God tells us through Haggai that he is about to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. We therefore have reason to take courage whenever we see anti-Christian powers on the rise. 
and we don't have to look very far uh, to see them, do we? There are politicians in Australia who seem determined to squeeze Christianity out of public life. They actively pursue policies in rebellion to God's revealed will, and then they paint his people as harmful bigots. There are nations within our region that have vehemently anti-Christian leaders who shut down church meetings, who keep Christians under constant surveillance, who try to pollute the gospel with government propaganda and who punish harshly anybody who stands firm in the faith. If this troubles you, if it fills your heart with anger or with dismay, then remember that these powers are about to be overthrown. From a human standpoint, maybe they're not going anywhere in a hurry, just like for the Jews in Zerubbabel's day, who never got to see the ungodly leaders of the Middle East get toppled. But from a heavenly perspective, the reigns or terms of kings or political leaders are little more than a blink or a blip. Herod the Great was the original anti-Christian tyrant. He felt the first rumblings of God's kingdom, shaking the kingdoms of the earth through his Christ. And he tried to snuff out the Lord Jesus not long after the first Christmas by slaughtering the babies in the region. But guess what happened? Herod died shortly after. Jesus grew up in safety. 300 years later, the emperors Galerius and Diocletian used the awesome beastly might of Rome to attempt to wipe out Christianity within the empire. A decade later, they were both dead and the new Roman Emperor Constantine uh, professed allegiance to Christ, halted persecution throughout the empire and paved the way for the gospel to spread throughout the world and keep shaking nations wherever it went. That's the two options for rulers and powers who try to destroy Christ and his kingdom. Try, then die, like Herod, like Galerius, Diocletian, or fall in line and recognise the true king, like Constantine did. Every anti-Christian leader that you see today has one of those two fates awaiting them. All kingdoms will fall, but God's Messiah will reign. Let us give thanks that he has given us a share in his kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, there truly are so many things in the world today that trouble us, make us feel insecure, concerned, uncertain. But we thank you for your word uh, today that you've always planned to put your king on the throne, 
to bring about lasting change and stability through him. We pray, give us patience, give us hope, give us faith to keep looking to Jesus, to celebrate his coming into the world uh, and the tremors that have always uh, been passing through the world since he came that first Christmas. Help us to be found faithful when he returns again to reign forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.